Welcome to the Yale University Press podcast. I'm Jessica Hollihan, one of the hosts of the podcast. I talk to authors of our art and architecture books, and I'm really delighted to introduce my two guests today, Susan Brown and Alexa Griffith-Winton, both of whom work at New York's Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum. Susan is associate curator and acting head of textiles, and Alexa is manager of content and interpretation. Alexa is also a design historian and an expert on Dorothy Liebes, who is the subject of their exhibition and book, A Dark, A Light, A Bright, The Designs of Dorothy Liebes. Dorothy Liebes was a textile designer and weaver who set up her first studio in San Francisco in 1930. And from that time until the end of her life, she worked in textiles specializing in custom fabrics made for architects and interior designers. A recent piece about the Cooper Hewitt exhibition in the art newspaper affirms that the show, quote, reinstalls Liebes as one of the period's creative geniuses. So, Susan and Alexa, welcome. And let's start with the spark of Dorothy Liebes's genius. What do we know about how and when she got into textile design and weaving? Um, she seems to have discovered weaving when she was pretty young. She, we know she went to Hull House, the um, settlement house in Chicago that had been founded by Jane Addams. And um, that's where she, um, she says she started to weave. She took a weaving class there. And when she was there, she met a woman by the name of Anne Swainson, who um, had a, she was a very important figure in um, branding corporate identity, actually, in a very early, um, at a very early time. And also she was really interested in textile design as uh, an industry. And she had a very strong impact on Liebes, and they worked together again when Liebes was at um, UC Berkeley, where she continued her design studies. She also had uh, the opportunity to work with Anne Swainson again. And um, addition, in addition to that, Liebes also, she was very uh, drawn to art. She originally wanted to be a painter. She had a real love of color and texture, and she... Uh, she was Anne was one of the people who, who suggested to her that her her paintings looked like textiles, and that she c should consider transferring those ideas that she was putting into her paintings into textiles. And that was a really kind of like a lightning bolt moment for her. And she loved the practice of weaving. She loved working with the materials. She was really experimental with her materials that she wove with. And that really started her on her journey to becoming a professional designer, although it took her some uh, time after, um, after she graduated from Berkeley to do that. She, um, she did go on and get a master's in art education. She studied with another um, very influential woman by the name of Belle Boaz there, who was part of John Dewey's circle. And um, I think Belle really taught her the importance of teaching about art in a really engaging and straightforward way, something that Liebes carried forward into her discussions of textiles in her public-facing roles. Um, and she says that when she realized that she could make more money designing and selling her weavings than she could teaching art, that's when she made the decision to um, try and put all of her effort into becoming a professional textile designer. And though she's been referred to as 
the mother of modern weaving and the first lady of the loom, but doesn't surprisingly have the name recognition of, say, Annie Albers or Florence Knoll. What what factors do you think contributed to her not being as well-known today as she really deserves to be? It is quite shocking um, because her influence was so um, profound and pervasive um, how quickly her name was dropped uh, from the history of design. Um, of course, until recently, there's been a tendency to devalue both women and textiles in architecture and design scholarship. Dorothy Lee was contributed to some very notable interiors, including the United Nations, Doris Duke's Shangri-La, the Persian Room. Um, but those spaces tend to be attributed to the architect alone in the design and history scholarship, although that was not the case at the time. Um, Liebus was very frequently called out in magazine and newspaper coverage of the period. Also, the work was largely photographed in black and white, which fails to capture her brilliance as a colorist, which is something she was as well known for as she was for her weaving. And also at the time that she died in 1972, the focus among curators and historians was on fiber art. So her work as a commercial textile designer at that time um, did not seem to be considered relevant as a subject for scholarship. What about what about in her day? There's a quote in the book from uh, her second husband, who was the journalist Relman Morin, uh, that though she was a powerful influencer, he said, except for the professionals, most of those influenced did not even realize it. Do you think that was accurate? And if so, why? I think this is a really interesting question. And I think um, the answer is yes and no. It is and it is not accurate in the sense that um, Liebes had kind of two identities. One was the collaborator, the designer who was working in a really hands-on way with architects, but also with textile mills, with all kinds of industry partners. In that sense, the full scope of her influence, I think, was not visible. You know, the, um, the fruits of that would be um, com- coming out, not necessarily under her name, but it did exert a really powerful influence over American design over many decades. She did also have a very public-facing profile. And she, if you were interested in magazines, you would come across her. She was in Life magazine. She was in Collier's magazine, Mademoiselle, Women's Day, in addition to House and Garden, in addition to all the trade magazines, including you know, Modern Floors. They had all these wonderful trade magazines at the time. And she's in all of those, Architectural Review, um, Arts and Architecture magazine. So if you were involved in... Um, magazine culture at all, if you were interested in design at all, you would definitely come up against her name. Um, And so, you know, I think she did have a very high profile identity as a designer, um, was often, you know, photographed and there's, you know, the, the article in Life magazine is in gorgeous full color and, you know, really goes into depth about her studio and her work. And, you know, that was 1947 in one of the most popular magazines of the day. Um, but I think that if you consider the full impact of her work, the full, the total number of people who were in, um, buying or 
coming into contact with things that she had influenced or designed or consulted on that was not known. And I think we're still kind of trying to um, apprehend the full scope of that. Let's talk a little bit about the work itself. Um, Alexa, your an essay of yours in the book starts with design, color, and texture, which, you know, if we take those as components of her work, what aspects of each of those wind up characterizing a, a Liebes textile? Well, I'm going to give you a short answer and then hand you off to Susan, who um, is the expert in this. But she, you know, back to her um, notion of a public facing pro profile, design color texture was a way that she kind of um, distilled some, the core constituents of her work. And it was one of her um, sort of trademark ways of explaining in really plain um, and accessible language what makes an exciting textile. Um, and now I'm going to hand it off to Susan, who um, can can speak more clearly about that. <laughs> so early in her career, she developed some very lavish textures in her hand weaves. These are the big loopy piles and long hand knotted fringe that um, photographed very well in black and white. She also had a reputation as a materials innovator. She was well known for combining a lot of different materials and creating very unusual and complex textures in that way. She was quite fearless about color and became closely associated with what at the time were called clashing colors, like blue and green or pink and orange. And of course, um, her very exuberant use of metallics, particularly combining metallics with those nubby handwoven textures, whereas previously you might have associated metallics with very refined weaving or with um, silks. So that sort of combination of the, the rough and the glamorous. Where did she look for new materials? Did, did she have, you know, go-to materials that were consistent throughout her career or were there significant shifts based on, you know, where her base of operations was or anything else? Yes. Um, this is another really interesting question. And um, her approach to materials was always experimental, but the nature of those materials did change responding to um, restrictions of the time, material developments of the time. When she first established her professional weaving studio in around 1930, she had left her wealthy husband. She did not have uh, financial backing. And so she, out of necessity, turned to materials that were unusual um, and embraced them because they were inexpensive. She lived in San Francisco. Her studio was, um, both, both iterations of her studio were very close to Chinatown. And she often would walk through Chinatown shopping for uh, ribbons or bamboo rods or any kind of unusual thing that she could experiment with in her weavings. That kind of morphed into um, a different kind of experimentation during the Second World War when so many of the materials that were important to textile design, whether wool or silk um, or metallic threads, were not available because those were materials that were restricted um, for the war effort. And so she started to weave with casein silks and you know other kinds of textile um, but almost like bioplastic materials that um, very early um, kinds of bioplastics that were imitation leather 
Um, so that's a really interesting moment because you see her responding to that particular context in the material um, the material restrictions of the Second World War. And then after the Second World War, there was this explosion in materials innovation, some of which driven was driven by the war effort. And if you look at something like Lurex, um, you know, that was um, that was a direct result of materials innovations of the war um, in terms of both the the mylar that encased the aluminum yarn that became borax, but aluminum itself and the ability to produce large amounts of aluminum for relatively inexpensive um, costs was something that came about due to the war effort. And so she um, she was very sought after already because she was known as a materials innovator and someone who was very experimental and also analytical about how um, particular materials performed in textiles and that just continued to snowball and she became a consultant to um, DuPont and um, continued that very um, very interesting work in materials development that she continued with throughout the rest of her career. Yeah, let's stay with that for a minute because Lurex was, uh, you know, plays a big role in uh her career in the exhibition and the book. Um, can you tell us in a little bit more detail what it was? And, you know, you mentioned DuPont, who developed it. Um, talk a little bit also about the corporate collaboration between Liebes's studio and DuPont. Lurex is actually a product of the Dobekman Company, which was a Cleveland-based company. Um, eventually, some DuPont films like Mylar came to be used in the construction of Lurex. So Lurex is a synthetic metallic yarn that is a an aluminum foil, basically, that's encased in two layers of plastic. And the um, adhesive that holds that lamination together can be dyed. So you could make Lurex in any color. So Dorothy Liebes's actual um, title when she was working for the Dobekman Company was as a color stylist. And she did introduce like a wide range of um, different palettes into Lurex and expanded what metallics could be well beyond gold and silver. Um, she developed black patent leather Lurex and a, a pastel range that she called the porcelain colors um, that produced a sort of subdued shimmer, more like a silk satin than what we traditionally associate with Lurex. Um, and then to return to your question about DuPont, um, she did become a consultant to DuPont um, in the 1950s and stayed with them for many, many years. And she had a wide variety of different roles that she performed for DuPont. Um, as we've said a couple different times now, she was known as a materials innovator. And so they hired her um, and her you know, very experimental studio to work with all of these new materials that they were introducing after the war. She was working for the textile fibers division of the company um, and doing through her sort of experimental hand weaving practice, um, letting them know what was working, what was not working, what was gonna you know, cause some kind of problem at the factory. Um, and because she was such a great networker, she was able to get both DuPont products and Lurex into a wide range of different consumer products. Um, and so then she was able to give, you know, real-time feedback, like market research on what was 
successful and what was not successful and really um, shape the direction that synthetics took after the war. Um, and because she was so, so well-respected in the design field, um, she really helped to build confidence among her fellow designers that synthetics were worth considering for their projects and to build consumer confidence in synthetics as well. You write in, uh, in the book that in Aliba's textile, every facet of a color could be experienced at once, which um, in some of the incredible uh, detail photographs in the book and also in the exhibition um, is manifestly obvious. But, how, you know, how how did she achieve that? She'd often start with something lustrous like silk or mohair and then combine it with a light absorbing material like chenille that has a very kind of velvety effect when it's woven and a very reflective material like lurex so that you could see a color and its highlights and its low lights all in one eyeful so to speak she once said glitter is what sunlight does to grass and she was very skilled at using metallics to bring light into her colors and her sensitivity to light is something that Alexa wrote about very, very beautifully in her chapter of the book. I'm really interested in, um, in the role of light in interiors. And the more time I spent looking at her textiles and then looking at the architectural space that she designed them for, the more I understood how very, um, she really was extremely talented in understanding a spatial context and then understanding how textiles could enliven the space over it. They're almost like time-based experiences, especially when you look at the many different types of metallic she would incorporate into a single, a single textile. So um, if you, if you look at the wonderful photographs in the book, or if you um, have the opportunity to come to the exhibition, you'll see that sometimes they have just the thinnest little threads of metallic that kind of almost barely glimmer as you walk past. And then some of them are quite exuberantly reflective. And she she placed um, the levels of, of um, metallic brilliance and the different types of metallic tech, uh, yarns in her textiles very, very deliberately. And that is another thing that you really cannot, um, you cannot document that in a photograph. It really is about light and the movement of people and the movement of, you know, daylight moving across a space. And so we became very, we were so impressed with how she understood um, in a very thorough way, in a very architectural way, how to make the most of her textiles um, and their performance in relation to light. And that's something that I think is really thrilling. Um, you know, she brought her materials uh, experimentation into that. She would sometimes weave with um, acrylic rods that were transparent, but also, um, you know, blocked a direct view. So if she wanted to um, allow, for example, if she was doing window blinds, which is something she, she was very interested in creating a modern paradigm for window coverings. Traditional draperies were not going to be appropriate for many of the new modern style houses and apartments that she was designing for. So what is a modern window covering? And she would create these wonderful hand-woven screens, um, some of which are pictured in the book and in the exhibition. 
and you can see sometimes they're woven loosely so the light can come through from the back or it can shine out from the interior. All of this was very intentional. Um, she also would include these acrylic rods so that that would allow light to transmit, but it would maintain a sense of privacy. So you get that, that light leakage from the outside, but um, people can't actually see you if they're, you know, that kind of like window, window um, spying that we all do in New York, you know, it's very private. And so <laughs> it's very interesting the way that she captured all of that. And that is also something that made her um, of great value to architects and interior designers, because it was an additional layer of bespoke design that really brought so much quality to that interior experience. Um, so it is a topic I'm deeply interested in and um, hope to continue to, to think about um, and to work on in relation to Liebes' designs. The interplay of her designs with light also played out in maybe a, a slightly different way in her um, participation in Hollywood movies. Her textiles appeared in movies of the day, which, um, you know, it isn't in person. You don't get the full color in the case of black and white movies, but also isn't still photography. There are sources of light all over the place on a movie set. Um, how did how did she start that part of her career? <laughs> You know, she was um, a really tremendous networker, but I, when we say that, it's in a very authentic way. I think there was, um, she was deeply interested in people, and um, she started to design for some of the Hollywood moguls, um, people like Jack B. Warner, um, the actor and art collector Edward G. Robinson, uh, sometimes through her friend and collaborator, the interior designer. Frances Elkins, um, but sometimes she had connections through other pathways. And from there, at the same time, her design work was very well known amongst people who were interested in design. And of course, Hollywood production designers and costume designers were part of that uh, population. And uh, as you mentioned, the um, a filmic experience of her textile is much more um, accurate in terms of what you would see in person than a still photograph. So Susan and I um, absolutely love this film called East Side, West Side that was made in 1949 and it has an all-star cast with um, Barbara Stanwyck and James Mason and Ava Gardner. And um, it also stars Dorothy Liebes textiles. And you can see in the nightclub scene, which is sort of where all of the drama takes place, these beautiful shimmering drapes are framing the characters and especially Ava Gardner. There are these wonderful full, um, full length screens that are creating the entrance to this nightclub. And those have a wonderful play of, of um, contrast and value, even though there's no color, you get the real sense of how those sparkle and draw the eye and pull you into the room. And so it's really very exciting for us to come across those examples where um, we know there are Libas textiles in a film, in a production design. Um, and that's another area that is very little researched. And we hope to continue to build out that research because um, there there's surely more out there that that we haven't discovered yet in terms of her her work in films. Yes, and also in the area of costume design, um, her textiles were used by um, costume designers like Travis Banton and Edith Head, um, and 
you know, we mentioned that she used like a wide range of different materials that had different reflective properties. And so they, even in black and white, um, really created a very dynamic and dramatic sense of texture. Um, so there's a very beautiful evening coat um, that Travis Banton designed for Lucille Ball in a film called Lover Come Back um, that really even though it's a black and white film, you can tell that this fabric is really something very, very special. She was a great fan of fashion. All of the archival photographs of her, she looks amazingly stylish. Did she design uh, her, her own garments? She also had a, a long collaboration uh, with the fashion designer Bonnie Cashin. Is that right? Yes. She did not design garments herself um, once she was out of college. There are a few um, fashion design sketches in her um, college portfolio. But um, during those years when she was doing a lot of work in Hollywood, she did meet Bonnie Cashin, who was at the time the head costumer for 20th Century Fox. And the two of them became fast friends and they collaborated over a long period of decades um, on a wide range of different things. Um, in the exhibition, you can see some very beautiful skirts from a collection called Skirtings Inc., which was very actively promoted as a Dorothy Liebes Bonnie Cashin collaboration. Um, at that point, this was in the 1950s, the mid 1950s, Dorothy Liebes was so well known that to have her name associated with um, that collection was a selling point. And those were extraordinarily expensive. Um, evening skirts for glamorous entertaining at home um, made out of hand-woven Dorothy Liebes fabrics. But the two of them continued to collaborate into the 1960s when Bonnie Cashin was doing a more sort of ready-to-wear line for a company called Philip Sills. And through that connection, Dorothy Liebes started designing for a company called Jasco Fabrics. And so Bonnie Cashin could use um, Dorothy Liebes's power-loomed fabrics for Jasco for the Philip Sills collection. So um, both at the high end and the more affordable end of the fashion spectrum, they created really incredibly um, timeless and beautiful American design. And Dorothy Liebes also worked with other American designers, including Adrian and Claire Potter. Um, for Adrian, he used her fabrics. She wore Adrian a lot, and he used her fabrics a lot for his um, jackets in particular, jackets and coats. Um, but he also commissioned her to create a very stunning set of leather and metallic draperies for his showroom in Beverly Hills, uh, which you can also see in the exhibition. Well, speaking of collaboration, something we haven't talked about yet is um, her studios and the community of people that she gathered around her professionally, people who worked for her, um, and the atmosphere in the workplaces that she ran, which seem like unusual and unusually wonderful places. Will you talk about that a little bit? This is one of our favorite things that emerged from our, um, our immersion in the Dorothy Liebes papers, which are at the Archives of American Art. And um, we will say thank you again to um, Archives of American Art for partnering with us so um, 
closely on our research and the archi the archive is vast. It's over 40,000 items. Um, but one of the things that really emerges from the correspondence, the studio correspondence is the personalities of the very smart, creative, um, driven, interesting people who, um, who wanted to work in her studio, who sought her out and came to work in her studio. And um, it, it really is, I mean, in part because she was traveling so much and it is before long distance telephones were really affordable and telephone calls were really affordable. There are some um, telegrams, but mostly it's letters either hand typed or handwritten. And through these letters, you really get a sense of the texture of these personalities and the relationships between Levis and her studio weavers. And um, her, you know, for example, the um, one of the first people who came to work in her studio when she first opened was Louise Fong. And Louise stayed um, with the Dorothy Levis studio until Liebes closed it in um, the early 1950s when she moved to New York. And Louise was the, the kind of chief operating officer, if you will. She took care of the books and was a problem solver for Liebes, but also a confidant. And Liebes acknowledges her often in her memoir and in other correspondence saying that without Louise Fong, she never could, she would have been out on the street or in the breadline long, long ago. Um, she also, I think, felt it was very important. She understood that mentorship was really important, especially for um, women designers, um, other um, marginalized designers who were working in her studio. And she worked tirelessly on their behalf. And she was a great talent spotter. So somebody like um, Tamis Keefe, Levis encountered working in an advertising agency in Los Angeles and um, said, you should try textile design. You would be very successful at that. Come and work with me. And at that time, Libas, in addition to her hand weaving, had a very active print styling and coloring um, uh, wing of her business that Tamis really took on. Um, and then Tamis herself went off on her own and became a very successful textile designer in her own right. And she's very famous and very collected today for these wonderful, very witty handkerchiefs and tea towels that she created um, when she when she left the Libas studio in the late 1940s. And she and Libas were close until Tamis died very young um, at the age of 40 in, um, I believe, 1960. And, you know, Libas documented all of Tamis's achievements in her own press books, which were the place where she, you know, she put all of her own publications and notices of her work and so on. Um, so it's clear that she was very invested in the success of, of the young people that were moving through her studio. Darren Pierce is another one. He had a background in fashion and was very interested in um, working in the Libas studio. He did for a few years, but then he also went on to do interior design for William Pullman, another collaborator, frequent collaborator of Libas's. Um, and then he also um, later in his career opened a needlepoint store on the Upper East Side, which only very recently closed. And Libas was very close to him and supported those endeavors also and was a backer of his needlepoint store. Um, and, you know, so we, we loved seeing the, ver the very um, 
um, the great care that she took with the people who were in her studio and, and, um, and, um, how do you say they all had very interesting and strong personalities and that was honored in the studio. And that is something else that I think is very interesting. And she spoke about them publicly, called them her alum, her alumni and said that she was inordinately proud of them. And so in, for, for me as a design historian, it's a really thrilling thing to kind of um, celebrate this narrative of a designer who, um, you know, to, to look at all of the people that went into making her success. Um, and she knew that they were contributing to her success. And so um, when Susan and I were, were organizing our ideas around the exhibition and the book, we wanted to be sure that we could highlight the studio people as much as possible because they were deeply important to her and they were key to the success of the Dorothy Lubis studio. And so we did not want to replicate one of these sort of you know, lone genius architecture monographs that, um, that, you know, are still sometimes coming out, which is sort of amazing, but to really look at design as a collaborative endeavor um, and all of the effort and the labor that goes into that, um, that is never the work of one person. So um, getting to know the weavers a little bit through the correspondence and through um, the papers in the archives of American art was one of the real highlights for for us in the research that we did for this project. And we're very proud to highlight that in the exhibition as well, um, where we are able to share some of the stories of some of the studio people that we we know more about, like Darren Pierce, like Tamas Keefe, the wonderful painter Emma Amos, who was also in the Dorothy Luba studio in New York for most of the 1960s. So it's really very interesting to think of the kind of um, almost spider web of her influence, if you will, that is, you know, continuing, I think, to reverberate in the history of design. And in addition to Erica Wilson, Erica Warren's um, wonderful chapter in the book, we were fortunate to receive an American Women's History Initiative grant to uncover the stories specifically of queer and BIPOC studio workers, um, which we discuss in more detail in the digital exhibition platform. So that's ongoing research that we can continue to add to on that digital platform. That's very exciting. And, and the, you know, the warmth and uh, the different personalities in Dorothy Lewis's studio, really, that does come across in the, in the book very well. And which leads me to my last question. I wanted to ask you about the book itself because uh there were some interesting and wonderful design choices made uh, that have resulted in it being a wonderful and <clears throat> unusual object. And I was curious what, you know, what were some of your goals for the the object of the book going into it? And how did how did that make its way into what it is now as a published book? Yeah, we um, we knew from the beginning that there was a very broad range of materials. There was ephemera, there were, you know, archival magazine cuttings and the scrapbooks and, um, you know, extraordinary numbers of photographs in addition to her weaving samples that we have in Cooper Hewitt's collection and the um, uh, things that we found in, in archives, even outside of the archives of American art. 
And for us, as we were thinking about how to structure the book, how to structure the exhibition, it was the same challenge for the book designer is how do you give shape to the kind of really broad diversity of material that we were wanting to include, make it um, something that is really supporting the stories that we were trying to tell in the texts and to communicate the real excitement of her work. Um, and, you know, so Susan had our wonderful um, photographer, museum photographer at the time to photograph, re-photograph all of the samples. Um, and those, those beautiful close-up photographs that you see in the book that really show better than any other photographs that I have ever seen of her work, the extraordinary range of detail and texture um, that she was able to include in those, um, in those textiles. But, you know, how to organize that material in a way with all of those colors and all of those unusual materials and, and you know, it's, it's historic material, but at the time, you know, her work was very new and it was very modern and exciting at the time. So how do we honor that, um, that kind of mid-century uh, optimism and enthusiasm that infused her work without making it seem nostalgic? And so that was a big challenge for a book designer. Um, you know, I have been sort of working on Libus for many years before we started this project. So I had a lot of time to think about um, what the book designer, um, how, how the, who would be a good um, candidate to design the book. And um, when I saw um, the wonderful book that Art Institute of Chicago did, which was also um, a Yale book in a, in a wall, in a, in a cloud, in a wall, in a chair, which had been designed by Estudio Herrera in New York, in Mexico City, um, which had, it, it's a smaller book, but it had um, a similar range of archival material and photographs and incredible, beautiful objects. And there was so much clarity to the visual presentation of that book, the organization of the text and image together, um, that I sort of instantly said to myself, if, if, we, if I ever get to do this Libus book, I want a studio to Herrera to design it. And so luckily they said yes. <laughs> and I do think that they did an incredible job in creating a really compelling um, um, visual experience um, in the book as object, as you said, um, but also, you know, gave it a kind of, um, uh, Marie Chris is very analytical as a designer. And I think she, she really knew how to organize that material visually. Um, to create something that is really engaging, it draws you in instead of overwhelming you with the kind of, um, you know, just the the vastness of all of the images that are included in the book. So um, we are really thankful to them for all of the thought and care that they put into that book. And we are getting um, so much great feedback on the design. So we're really pleased that um, that enthusiasm is, um, you know, contagious <laughs> And um, inspiring other people who are who are um, looking through the book and reading the chapters as well. The book and the exhibition are marvelous achievements. It's very exciting that all of this research has been done and continues to go on. It will, you know, inspire a, a new generation of designers. There's there's just no doubt. And I want to thank you both very much for coming on the podcast and talking to us about the amazing Dorothy Liebes. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jessica. The exhibition, A Dark, A Light, A Bright, 
is on view at New York's Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum until February 4th, 2024. And the book, A Dark, A Light, A Bright, The Designs of Dorothy Liebes, is available now wherever books are sold. Thank you for listening, and please visit us online at yalebooks.com for more episodes of the podcast, as well as information about this and all of our books.